University Medical Center has been here for El Paso in times of crisis, in times of illness, and in times of joy. We are the highest designated hospital in El Paso, and we are ready to care for you and your family. At UMC, we care for El Paso. The little girl was wearing a red dress and black Mary Janes with white socks. She was practically dancing in the aisle. Her head's darting back and forth as she looked over all the new toys lining the shelves at Walmart. Alexandra Flores was five years old and she knew Christmas was weeks away. You can almost feel her excitement coming through the surveillance video. Also in the video, the heartbreaking moment when she's being led out of the store by a stranger. Your heart just sank. Your heart just sank because uh, we know we had a stranger abduction here. Twenty years ago this month, little Alexandra was lured out of a Walmart in El Paso's Lower Valley. The final moments of her young life preserved on surveillance video. We're searching for her everywhere and we can't find her. It was a shocking murder. An innocent little girl snatched, stolen from her family, her body dumped in a parking garage. You don't forget, you just learn to live with it. It changed her family. We became a lot closer. It changed the city. It changed me. And two decades later, that heinous act still haunts the community and the people who helped put her killer behind bars. I guarantee you, we will find who did this. The kidnapping and murder of Alexandra Flores is this episode of Borderland Crimes, sponsored by University Medical Center of El Paso. Twenty years ago, on November 18, 2001, the Flores family walked into the Walmart in El Paso's Lower Valley. It was the late afternoon on Sunday, the last weekend before this store and others across the city would be flooded with Christmas shoppers. Alexandra Flores wanted to look at toys, but her mother was certainly not going to let the five-year-old pre-K student and youngest of eight children go alone. All the kids were allowed to go to the toy section together. Alexandra's eight-year-old brother was tasked with watching her like a buddy system to make sure she didn't get lost. But she did get separated somehow. She was seen on Walmart surveillance camera. The little girl in a red dress was wandering around alone in a toy aisle Alexandra was also spotted walking alone past an employee stationed at a booth near the back of the store. And the last time we saw Alexandra on the surveillance camera, the five-year-old was being led out of the store by a man. When Sandra Rubio Flores and Jaime Flores retrieved their kids, they didn't see Alexandra. 
They looked in the nearby aisles for her. She wasn't there. They rushed to security guards for help. Store management issued a Code Adam, the missing child system Walmart created just years earlier, and locked down the store. The El Paso police began to search for the little girl that November evening. Officers issued a Maria alert, a precursor to the Amber alert, and her parents pleaded for help on the local news. When you home, baby, come home, baby. We love you. Your grandma, your grandpa. Your sisters, your brother. <laughs> Whatever you are, please come home, baby. Local TV news stations broadcast a photo of Alexandra. It was her new pre K school picture. She was wearing a baby blue satin dress. Half of her straight dark brown hair was pulled away from her bright dark brown eyes and rested on her puffy blue sleeves. She had a small, almost shy smile. Even if you didn't know her, you felt her parents' fear. Their other children were scared too. And it crossed our minds, oh well, she left with a stranger because our parents always taught us like, don't talk to strangers, don't go with strangers. If you don't know them, you know, don't go with them. So I always thought, oh, well, she's in the toy section. We'll find her soon. We'll find her soon. Or, you know, maybe she went to the restroom or just things like that, that we just thought she was in the store. They sound her on the intercom. Uh, Alexandra, your parents are waiting for you by uh, cashier number eight. Please uh, make your way over here. And no minutes turned into hours and nothing. Then the police arrived and then, you know, the canine units arrived and nothing, we, we, we didn't see her again. Lizette Ibarra is one of Alexandra's older sisters. Lizette was nine years old when her sister disappeared in 2001. We met for the first time ahead of the 20th anniversary of her sister's kidnapping and murder. When I saw her, I was taken aback. The physical resemblance between Lizette and Alexandra is strong. Even from a photograph taken 20 years ago, I could see the two sisters have the same eyes, the same brow line, both have a slight cleft chin. Lizette said she'd get quite a few comments like that over the years, but she gets them more now about her own daughter, who's the age she was when Alexandra was killed. My daughter was born and she grew up looking a lot like her. and. I could tell it was hard on my parents just because her resemblance was almost identical to Alexandra's. It was hard, but it was it brought them happiness as well because it was like they were able to to re, to relive what they were, you know, what they um, took away from them. Her parents lost a daughter on November 18th, and Lizette lost her sister. They were close in appearance and in age. They played together. They weren't used to being apart, and it was hard for Lizette to leave Walmart without her parents and little sister that night. One of our aunts picked, her, picked us up, all of us up, and they drove us home. And we were just waited there in the living room for our parents to arrive, because we didn't we didn't feel safe like without them there or without Alexandra because Alexandra would sleep with uh, Andrea, Monique and I. So it just the bed just felt empty without her. I was in the newsroom the night Alexandra went missing, watching her mother and father plead for help on the 10 p.m. news. I remember thinking it was scary that ahead of the holiday shopping season, something so routine could turn so terrifying. 
Alexandra's disappearance was the kind of tragedy that made many El Paso parents more cautious about letting their kids out of sight, especially in a busy store. One of those parents was the chief of police at the time, Carlos Leon. It just hit me, just like everybody else, just like you. Uh, it, it was a deep, deep hurt that we, we have got to find, uh, we've got to find her. Leon had served on the El Paso Police Department since 1974. Alexandra's disappearance came two years into his tenure as chief. As her parents grew increasingly distressed as the night wore on, Leon went to the scene and met with them himself. And I remember speaking to the parents, the mom. I remember talking to the mom and I said, this is only the second time in my entire career that I said something like that. And I said, I guarantee you we will find who did this. Did you fear that that maybe you wouldn't be able to keep that promise? Yeah, ever? yeah, uh, yes I did. But I, I thought to myself, we have got to solve this. There's no way that somebody can go into a store and take a five-year-old child under everybody's nose. The next morning, an employee at a doctor's office in West Central El Paso arrived at work. She pulled into the subground parking lot and immediately spotted something odd. It looked like a mannequin in a heap against the back wall of the lot. But when she got closer, she realized it was not a mannequin. It was the lifeless, nude body of a young girl with a bag wrapped around her head. The employee called police. And I can tell you right now we're at the intersection of California and Oregon, as you mentioned, just near downtown El Paso. Police have been out here on the scene till, uh, since just a little after 7 o'clock. Now, Sergeant Al Velarde, the spokesman with the El Paso Police Department, did just address the media. Now, here's what I can tell you right now. As you mentioned, they have found a young girl's body here at the doctor's, a doctor's office, I, I should say. If you see the intersection of the street there and look to the right, that building uh, houses three medical doctors, and behind that building, underneath it, if you will, there's a parking garage, not an underground parking garage, but a, a secluded parking garage where this young girl's body was found. Now, our first question for police was, is this body of Alejandra Flores, the five-year-old that disappeared or was abducted from a Walmart at Americas and Alameda last night? Right now, the police are saying they don't know. They're not confirming whether or not it is young Alejandra Flores. And even though that reporter was careful to say police had not confirmed to him that the body belonged to Alexandra, officers on the scene had already visually confirmed her identity using information provided by the family. Her red dress was gone. In fact, none of her clothes were ever recovered, but they recognized her face. Alexandra's older sister, Lizette, knew something was wrong once the phone rang that morning. All I remember was my mom and my dad just crying and crying and crying. That's the only thing I remember of that morning, other than waking up to um, having the police in our room, you know, searching for things of hers, uh, taking her combs, her brushes, fingerprinting, the whole room. That's what I will woke up to that November 19th. El Paso Police Detective Arturo Turi Ruiz drove to the scene where the body was found. All he knew was it was a child's body, but he suspected, dreaded, that it would be Alexandra. Ruiz, who has been retired since 2013, told me he remembered mentally preparing himself as he walked up to the parking structure. It was a terrible sight. She uh, was nude, completely nude. Uh, she had um, what appeared to be some kind of plastic wrapping over her face. And there was evidence where uh, they attempted to set her body ablaze. The medical examiner determined Alexandra was strangled. The burning came after she had died, 
and there wasn't any evidence that her attacker had sexually assaulted her. Detective Ruiz told me it was a strange relief to know Alexandra's suffering wasn't compounded. So much of what investigators had seen up to this point of the investigation prompted them into grief counseling. Many of them worked through the night to find the girl, and not being able to save her was distressing for everyone, including Chief Leon. All the detectives, all the personnel working on this case, uh, felt very strongly. As soon as I heard that, my heart sank, and I knew they were feeling the same way. And I'm thinking to myself, how can I face the mom now? Alexandra's body was found at a location 16 miles from where she was taken. It's a nearly 25-minute drive across town from the Lower Valley Walmart to that doctor's office near downtown El Paso. I asked Ruiz about that. We strongly believe that the individual is going to have a tie with the area that the child was taken from and the area where the body was left. That was one angle that we knew that we were going to have to work. You know, what is around Walmart that we need to find out and what is around the uh, Cathedral High School area that we need to know about, about this individual. So later on in the investigation, that ties in. Meantime, investigators tried to find out who took Alexandra and why. Minutes after police were called to the Walmart to investigate Alexandra's abduction, they began combing through every single security camera inside and outside the store. They were determined to retrace the family's movements. The surveillance video quality was not very good, so the police department worked with engineers at KVIA ABC7 to enhance the imagery. Local news stations broadcast that touched-up video. Everyone saw Alexandra in her red dress, holding on to the handle of the shopping cart as her mom pushed it through the sliding double doors. We watched Alexandra meandering the toy aisle alone, and we all saw the chilling moment Alexandra was kidnapped. We watched the little girl walking toward the store exit, being led by a man in a dark shirt and a white baseball cap. Your heart just sank because uh, we know we had a stranger abduction here. The parents of Alexandra Flores, along with her seven brothers and sisters, held a funeral three days after her body was found. It was open to the El Paso community, and hundreds of people showed up to mourn. Many of them knew the family, and many didn't. Reporters were also allowed at the church. So we're going to try and comfort them. We're trying to try and comfort them and tell them that, you know, that this was um, a terrible tragedy and that God is always with us and he will make sure that things, that there's justice. Family pictures of Alexandra were posted by her casket and flower bouquets, but the tears were too hard to hold back for such an innocent child taken from all of us. I feel the parents' pain, and no matter how hard you try, it's hard to find peace and calm at a time like this. That was me, 20 years ago, translating an interview with a woman who attended the funeral. She didn't know the Floreses. She simply wanted to offer her condolences. While the family grieved, detectives had two big breaks in the case. The first came from an alert Walmart parking lot security officer the day of the kidnapping. She uh, happened to notice a van that was parked up against the Murphy's gas station. The van was running, the engine was running, but it was unoccupied. She said, I stood by the van. I waited like 10, 15 minutes, nobody showed up. She was kind enough to get her daily log activity and put down a slight description of the van and the plate number. Once we ran the plate, we came up with a registered owner and the registered owner popped up as a registered sex offender. That registered sex offender's name was David Santiago Renteria. He had turned 32 
three days after Alexandra had gone missing. Detectives now had access to all of Renteria's personal information, information sex offenders must submit upon registration, like the crime he committed to put him into the registry. He had molested a little girl about 10 years earlier, a girl who was close in age to Alexandra. His home address, turns out, he lived down the street from the Walmart. Photos of Renteria, handprints and fingerprints, even his shoe size. Detective Ruiz felt cautiously optimistic. Maybe it was a coincidence that a sex offender happened to leave a vehicle idling outside the Walmart at the same time Alexandra was kidnapped. But maybe it wasn't. So detectives started to compare the evidence with Renteria's information. And that's when they came across their second big break. When the body of Alexandra Flores was found on November 19, 2001, she was naked with a plastic bag wrapped around her head, strangled and set on fire. Ruiz told me the team of detectives honed in on the only item that might have fingerprints, the plastic bag. One crime scene investigator, he could see what he thought was ridges, fingerprint or palm ridges on a portion of the plastic bag. So he came up with this idea to get, um, and I don't know this correct name, but like those uh, metal crochet rings where people used to like knit. Mm -hmm. uh, and they went and got one and he put it out there. And carefully, he started expanding it to where it didn't overstretch it, but it was just stretched enough. And then they went through a process of uh, using super glue and it did reveal uh, what was later identified as a palm print. A detective managed to stretch out the melted bag and uncovered a partial handprint. I'm just really impressed that you would be able to see what looked like a palm print or any type of handprint on there. Yeah, and our crime scene is, uh, that's their expertise. That's what we send them to training. And uh, it's, um, at that time, we had a lot of creative uh, investigators down there. They would think outside the box, not just what they were trained. The detectives lifted a print, but would they be able to confirm who left it behind? Retired detective Bruce Orndorf pulled the files on David Renteria and he said, you know what, I'm sure that it's his print, and I believe it was a right palm print, this area here. Ruiz referred to the heel of his right hand. Where the bag was recovered, it would have been about right here thinking that, that he held her down at one point right there. He said, uh, there's enough bridges to make a match, but he says, I, I need a second opinion. He told us that he had a real good friend and highly respected lane examiner uh, with the FBI in DC. We made arrangements to get uh, Bruce Orndorf to Washington DC on a moment's notice. We, uh, we didn't want to ship the evidence or anything and risk getting it lost, so we kind of pinned it to Bruce's shirt here. Ruiz made a motion as though he were tucking something inside a suit lapel. Sent him off like a little kid with the evidence. <laughs> I said, don't lose it. Do not lose the evidence. He assured us he wouldn't. He went out there. The day after he flew in, he met with the FBI examiner, and uh, he agreed and also provided a sworn statement to us saying that there was no doubt that that print on that plastic bag was made by David Renteria. Not just one, but two fingerprint experts verified that the palm print on the bag belonged to David Renteria, a registered sex offender whose vehicle was at the Walmart the day Alexandra was kidnapped. Ruiz said everything was lining up. Oh man, it's like you hit the jackpots. After that, we got all our ducks lined up and we proceeded to take the next step into securing an arrest warrant for David Renteria. Police identified who they believed kidnapped and murdered a little girl. Next, how they arrested David Renteria.
University Medical Center has been here for El Paso in times of crisis, in times of illness, and in times of joy. We are the highest designated hospital in El Paso, and we are ready to care for you and your family. At UMC, we care for El Paso. More than two weeks after five-year-old Alexandra Flores went missing from a Lower Valley Walmart and was found dead, the city of El Paso remained on edge. No one had been arrested, and then-police chief Carlos Leon said the random nature of the attack made El Paso parents feel vulnerable. This kind of case really caught the attention of the entire city. They, they, they wanted to know what happened. This was and is like a big family. That's why one of the reasons that El Paso is so safe, because we are a big family. We look out for each other. Plus, remember, everyone had seen the kidnapping happen on that Walmart surveillance camera footage that was broadcast on the local news. Everyone had watched a man in a dark colored shirt and white baseball cap lead Alexandra out of the store. And that man, was on the loose. In the days after the murder, investigators released more silent black and white surveillance video. It's like witnessing the anatomy of the abduction. This video showed the man in a dark t-shirt and a white baseball cap push a shopping cart past an employee station in what looks like the wide aisle near the back of the Walmart. A few seconds later, we see Alexandra alone wandering by that same employee station in the opposite direction. By the time Alexandra is almost out of frame, the man in the dark shirt and white cap is back. He had turned around and was now following Alexandra. Unfortunately, by the time we saw this, we knew Alexandra doesn't get away. We can only guess what that man said to prompt Alexandra to follow him out of the store. Police hadn't said anything publicly about suspecting David Renteria of committing the crime. The day Alexandra's body was found, police followed a protocol of combing through El Paso's sex offender registry and interviewing those whose crimes seemed to parallel their current investigation. They even interviewed David Renteria. At that point, they didn't know the palm print on the bag over Alexandra's head would match his print on file. Once the palm print match was confirmed, police began monitoring his house, watching his patterns, and trying to learn as much as they could about him. Remember when Detective Turi Ruiz said he suspected that Alexandra's killer had ties to both the area where she was taken and where she was found? He was right. David Renteria was a graduate of Cathedral High School, which was right across the street from where she was located. And he had family members on Randolph Street, which is up the street from where the body was located. So that gave us our tie-in from the crime scene where she was actually kidnapped and the disposal location. Investigators also learned that when Renteria was younger, he was a part of the El Paso Police Explorer Program. The program was an introduction to the police department for those aged 14 to 20. I can't remember what years this was, but the explorers get a lot of training on, on law enforcement, crime scene investigation, so he was well knowledge in that aspect of how law enforcement worked. Did Renteria get into the explorers because he wanted to be a police officer? or because he wanted to learn their tactics. We won't ever really know the answer to that. El Paso police also learned where Renteria was employed, what he did there, and his schedule. Renteria worked at a Lowe's hardware store in East El Paso. He helped customers take purchases to their vehicles. On Monday, December 3rd, exactly two weeks after Alexandra was found dead, detectives descended on the Lowe's. 
David helped load the purchases for that couple. He starts walking away and we just surrounded him, uh, took him down and took him into custody. That night, outside of El Paso Police Headquarters, everyone got a first look at David Renteria. His head hung low as he kept his eyes on the ground in front of him and said nothing. It was so quiet, all you could hear was a news camera's clicking shutter. This man who was being accused of a horrendous crime against a child, and he looked totally average. So average, it'd be hard to pick him out of a lineup. News crews swarmed around him as detectives led him to an unmarked police car to ride to the downtown jail. Days later, Alexandra's mom spoke to news reporters about the arrest. Sandra Flores felt more comfortable speaking Spanish. The English voice is a translation added in for the news broadcast. She expressed gratitude for police. They have big hearts, and they are in our hearts for helping us so much. This individual has no name. I can't say what name we should give him. He's an... Excuse me for this word, an animal. Police detectives weren't required to record the interrogations of suspects in 2001. Ruiz told me what Renteria said. He um, did tell us that he was at Walmart that day. He didn't deny it, that his mom had sent him to pick up uh, some items for dinner. He also uh, mentioned that he went in his van and that he did park it uh, far away and left it running because he said I had a problem with the uh, starting. So I didn't want to turn it off. I was only going to be in there a few minutes to get whatever my mom needed for, for dinner. And, and that's why I left it running. With that statement, David Renteria put himself at the scene of the kidnapping. He confirmed everything police knew from the videos, but Ruiz told me he soon realized this case wasn't going to be open and shut. When we started questioning about Alejandra Flores, he denied anything with her, any interactions. He denied being in the store in the areas where we knew Alejandra was based on video, which we had already seen his image in other aisles. Right. And uh, as a matter of fact, I remember clearly saying I really didn't know about her missing until maybe like three or four days later when I read it in the paper or something like that. But eventually he worked into uh, taking responsibility for the abduction. He denied killing her? Yes. All the way until the end? He denied it up until today. He's never, to my knowledge now, he's never come out and said, I killed her. Why did he abduct her? What did he tell you? Renteria's explanation is long, but Ruiz laid it out. He was housed at the jail annex in Montana, and he was put in a cell, and some individuals started messing with him, wanting to beat him up. And he said there happened to be a couple of Aztecas in there that took me under their wing, and they provided protection for me. So he said that day, he claims that he was in the store walking around the aisles to see what else he could pick up to take home. And that um, that one of the Aztecas that had offered protection came up to him and said that, said, little girl there, I need you to take her out of the store and deliver her to us outside. Uh, her dad uh, stole narcotics from us, so we need to teach dad a lesson. That was his story. Renteria claimed a guy who was in one of the most violent prison gangs on the border, a gang member who he said protected him while they were in jail together, 
happened to be in the Walmart at the same time Renteria was grocery shopping for his mother. And that gang member needed a favor from Renteria that involved helping abduct a child. And the way Renteria told it, he didn't hesitate to comply. He said that he did coach Alejandro to walk in out the store. He used uh, the rules of uh, your parents are outside. Your dad's a real good friend of mine. They're waiting for you. I told him I'd come in here and look for you. So you need to follow me. That's when Renteria confirmed to police that it was indeed him on the video walking out of the store with Alexandra. But he says that as he walked deeper into the parking lot, a car drove up. It was the Aztecas he turned Alejandro over to, and that's the last he ever saw her. Renteria denied putting Alexandra in his van. He denied killing her. Ruiz doesn't buy his story at all. To him, the evidence disputing that was overwhelming, including what crime scene analysts found in Renteria's van. One of our crime scene techs found a drop of blood uh, on one of the side panels of the van. They swapped it, and it was identified as being a blood drop from Alejandro Flores. So that put Alejandro Flores in the van. And detectives also got another palm print from Renteria. It once again matched the palm print found on the bag around little Alexandra's head. We can get Comic-Con and ask him, who did you lend your hands to? I mean, these... As Ruiz said that, he opened his hands, palm up, facing me. He was just out shopping for a child that day. That's his only intentions. But would the store surveillance video, the blood in the van, and the matching palm prints be enough to convince a jury that David Renteria carried out this heinous crime? I'll delve into the trial next. September 14, 2002, marked what would have been Alexandra Flores' sixth birthday. Her oldest sister, Esmeralda Frausto, talked to a reporter at the memorial service held that day at Our Lady of the Light Church in South El Paso. I find it hard because, I mean, I mean, just last year we were having a party for her and today it has to be a mass and... It's hard for us. It's hard for me. Hard to deal. Hard to deal with it. And at today's mass, Alexandra's family said they are gracious for all the support the community has given them over the past year. They say they'll need even more of it when Renteria goes to trial in February. It's still going to be difficult, you know, it's going to be kind of hard for us because we are in a situation that we don't know what's going to happen. You know, I myself will leave it up to God. The capital murder trial of David Renteria was supposed to start in February of 2003. Ever since Renteria pleaded not guilty to killing five-year-old Alexandra, his attorneys began pushing for the trial to be held away from El Paso, and they were trying to make their case for a change of venue to local reporters. Anyone who thinks that this is a simple open and shut matter is being naive. The images of a handcuffed David Renteria have dominated the airwaves. His lawyer says the intense media coverage means Renteria's trial should be moved elsewhere. Having 
someone's criminal history and maybe distortedly spread around the, the paper in one way or another all tends to poison the chances of him getting 12 people to listen to the actual evidence and deciding whether or not he actually did this and what the actual proper punishment should be if he did. The judge ultimately sided with the prosecution to try Renteria before an El Paso jury. But his defense team asked the judge for more time, and a new start date was set for September 8, 2003, nearly two years after Alexandra's murder. In a rare move, El Paso news cameras were allowed inside the courtroom for the trial. The prosecutor, El Paso District Attorney Jaime Esparza, tried driving home the heinous and calculated nature of David Renteria. It only took him 129 seconds, 129 seconds for him to do the shopping he wanted to do on the second visit to Walmart. He goes in and he walks out with that five-year-old. Esparza showed pictures of Alexandra's lifeless body at the scene a truly horrific sight for the audience, which included her family. The evidence is going to show that 14 hours later, we find her body. We find her naked. We find her alone. We find her burned. We find her cold. We find her all by her little self, lifeless, in a parking lot. 15 miles away from the Walmart. The jury heard Alexandra's blood was found in Renteria's van. They also saw the Walmart surveillance videos and watched Alexandra skipping around the toy aisle, saw her being followed by a man in a dark shirt and white cap pushing a shopping cart, and then being led by that man out of the Walmart they learned that man in the dark shirt and white cap was in and out of the Walmart in a matter of 40 minutes, buying nothing but not walking out empty-handed. Alexandra's mom testified about the last time she saw her daughter. On the witness stand, Sandra Rubia Flores wore a necklace with the ring that Alexandra was wearing the day she was killed. The prosecutor handed her a little red jacket with a collar that was furry and white with black spots. That jacket matched Alexandra's dress that she was wearing the day she was killed. She clutched it to her face and broke down in tears. It was already incredibly difficult for Sandra to take the stand in the capital murder trial of her daughter's accused killer, but it also happened four days before what would have been Alexandra's seventh birthday. On September 17, 2003, after a week and a half of testimony, Renteria's defense attorney Scott Siegel and prosecutor Jaime Esparza delivered their closing arguments to the jury. You'll first hear Siegel, then Esparza. We all know the print was found on a plastic bag, not on her face. And is there a difference between on her face and on the plastic bag? The answer is, there most certainly is. You'll understand, David didn't do this. He committed a violent, vicious, horrendous act. He strangled that little girl to death. It took from a minute to three minutes to kill that little girl. And we went from this to this. The prosecutor held up two photos. The first was of Alexandra smiling in the school picture. The second was one of her body at the crime scene. 
This is his handiwork. This is vicious. This was beautiful. He touched her, and we ended up with this. Just think about how smart he is. Think about how he left the body. He took the clothing away. Why would he take the clothing away? Because he's trying to destroy evidence. He doesn't want to leave anything behind. So he takes her clothing. Why does he set her on fire? To destroy evidence. To destroy evidence, that's the whole purpose. He's cold, he's methodical, and it's planned. After 40 minutes deliberating, the jury reached a verdict. We, the jury, find the defendant, David Renteria, guilty of the offense of capital murder as charged in the indictment. Renteria didn't react at all. His mother began to cry. Alexandra's mom showed no emotion as she left the courtroom. Her husband and sisters followed closely around her, and they bypassed reporters on their way to the courthouse elevators. The prosecution sought the death penalty, or life in prison. That life sentence would translate to 40 years behind bars before becoming eligible for parole. During the sentencing phase of the trial is when the prosecution and the defense can discuss the defendant himself, and not just in relation to the crime he's convicted of. That means both sides addressed that Renteria was a convicted child molester and a registered sex offender. The jury heard details about that first crime. The victim was a seven-year-old daughter of a work colleague from 1992. Renteria's probation officer testified that Renteria didn't seem to want to take responsibility for his crime at first, that he was below average in complying with his probation, and that, despite his willingness to get treatment, he didn't complete his therapy. The probation officer also testified she was shocked to learn Renteria was arrested and then convicted in Alexandra's murder because he did not appear to be a pedophile. Renteria's friend and sister defended him on the stand. I don't believe that he did it. So you do I not can't believe accept... It. I can't believe for myself, for myself, that he did it. My brother is not a violent man. And I trust him and have always trusted him with anything in all my life. He has never harmed anybody. The same 12 jurors were then asked to consider whether David Renteria should spend the rest of his life in prison or await lethal injection on death row. On September 23rd, after an hour of deliberation, they recommended that Renteria die for his crime. He looked like the air was knocked out of him, putting his head back as he looked at the ceiling. His family didn't want to talk to reporters, but Alexandra's aunt and mother did. I know this is not gonna bring her back, but at least we'll have peace, knowing that he's not gonna be out there to cause another harm. It's been real hard because it's almost been two years and it feels like it happened yesterday. We believe Alexandra is resting. He's in peace now. Knowing that one less predator will not harm another child again. Renteria was formally sentenced a week later by the judge. A reporter in the courtroom chronicled the hearing. I sentence you to death by lethal injection. David Renteria seemed emotionless as he walked to his seat. The clinking of his shackles filled the courtroom. Texas law allows Alexander's family to address Renteria 
first to speak, Alexandra's sister. You will die alone because your parents, your sister, know deep down inside that you are a monster. And they will be ashamed to even speak your name. I know that putting you to death is the best thing because you really are a monster. And you don't belong in this world with the rest of us. We have seen that you have no remorse, no conscience, no soul. And your heart, if you have one, is very dark and very, very small. You're already dead. You died the very moment you put your hands on Alexandra. You died because you, you will never see your child again. Nor your parents, nor your wife. You will not see your child grow up. He will soon forget you as if he, if he hasn't already. It was during the trial that we learned Renteria was married and had a child of his own. Alexandra's mother spoke next. I have many things that I want to tell you. And you are a monster that doesn't deserve to live and that you don't deserve to be in heaven. By my child, Alexandra, who is an angel. You deserve to be in hell. Alexandra's older sister, Lizette, at 11 years old, delivered a statement that day, too. She told me she wanted Renteria to know how she felt. I asked him, what made you think, you know, that taking my sister, you know, my, my parents' daughter from us, um, like, what was it going to, what were you going to benefit from it? Um, how would you feel if it was your son? Because I, they told us that he had a son the same age of my sister at the time. So I asked him, uh, how would you feel if it was your son, the one that was kidnapped and murdered? And I just remember his, him looking at me face to face, eye to eye, and that he just couldn't say anything. He wouldn't say anything. How hard was that for you to, to get up on the stand and face him like that? It was extremely hard, you know, heartbroken just because I was so close to Alexandra. So it was really hard to, to even look at him, to even be in the same room as him, knowing that he had taken my sister from me. Renteria was consoled by his attorney after Lizette and her family finished speaking. As he walked out of the courtroom, his family called out to him. Love you, Renteria responded to his family, saying he loved them too. This was the only time the public heard his voice, but it wasn't the last we'd hear of David Renteria. Renteria was on death row. Alexandra Flores' family was beginning to heal but the wounds were reopened in 2006 when a judge granted him a sentencing retrial and then threw out the original death sentence. It was due to a technicality. The Texas Court of Criminal Appeals sided with the defense who had argued in an appeal that the jury wasn't presented with evidence, a statement of remorse from David Renteria during the first trial in 2003. They said that could have helped him avoid the death penalty. In May of 2008, over roughly two weeks, both sides relitigated the sentencing phase, and a new jury came to the same conclusion. Renteria was sent back to death row. He remains in the Polinsky unit, which is about 75 miles northeast of Houston. After 18 years on death row, still no date of execution has been set.
This time of year is emotionally exhausting for the Flores family. Alexandra's father passed away on November 19, 2019, the anniversary of the day Alexandra was found. Lizette said before his death, Jaime Flores had forgiven Renteria. She said her mother has had a change of heart about witnessing the execution. My mom mentioned she wasn't going to go to the day, the, the day that he was going to be executed. Uh, she was not going to attend, which for us was strange because she always said she wanted to go the day that he was executed. And she said, no, you know what, I, I don't want to go anymore. I don't want to waste my energy and my time on him. He doesn't deserve it. But me, I've always, I've always been firm on wanting to go and being there that day, just because I feel that's the way I can close that chapter. The El Paso Police Department today was hesitant to speak about the tactics it uses to solve these cases because officials didn't want to discuss protocols. But retired police chief Carlos Leon, who's now an El Paso County Commissioner, told me when he was in charge, the detectives would review solved cases to see what went right and what went wrong to replicate or amend tactics. You can always improve on cases. Uh, you can always improve in your methods. One of the main things that stayed with me when uh, my wife and I would be at the store, uh, do you know where so-and-so is, uh, our son or our daughter? Those are the kind of cases that, uh, that really affect uh, any human being. And you look at what officers uh, see almost on a daily basis, year in, year out. Uh, it, it takes a toll on, uh, on them. Both Leon and retired detective Duri Ruiz appreciate the family, who often applauded the department's work in finding Alexandra's killer. Over the years, they've gone to a couple, at least one of my other prayer breakfasts that I have, and it's so nice to see them. And they always come up and hug me uh, and thank me for what, not what I did, but what the department did in helping her with that case. The way I see it is, uh, it was my job. There's no thank needed. I'm not a hero, I'm not anything. That's what I swore to do. Alexandra Flores was born in San Elizario, Texas. It's a community about 30 miles southeast of downtown El Paso. She only lived five years, but she's left a lasting legacy. A park located two miles down the road from the Flores family home was named in her honor in December 2007. Alexandra Flores Park has a playground, a skate park, and grilling stations near picnic tables. And a quarter mile away from Alexandra Flores Park is Lorenzo Loya Primary School, where she attended pre-K. In the months after her murder, school officials and classmates planted a tree in her honor. In front of the tree is a plaque dedicated to Alexandra. It's just amazing how a community can come together like that and remember such a young, a young little girl. In the school by the front office is a small glass trophy case. Inside is a framed copy of Alexandra's photo taken 20 years ago in this very school. The gold plate at the bottom of the frame reads, In loving memory of El Paso's little angel. Alexandra Flores did become a guardian angel for El Paso kids. Police were able to take a violent child predator off the streets, and parents got a wake-up call. 
don't leave your children un unattended because it's not a safe world anymore. And I feel it's important for people not to forget what happened to Alexandra because it can still happen now. Borderline Crimes is a podcast researched, written, and edited by me, Stephanie Valle. Gavin Black was my archive research assistant. Be sure to share, like, and subscribe. Another episode is coming soon. <laughs>